Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with feds or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Staying Connected. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in these podcasts are those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of the Marfan Foundation. The Marfan Foundation is not responsible for and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in them, nor does the information constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This show is not produced by or affiliated with the Marfan Foundation or the VEDS movement. In our last episode, we heard from Grace Earbar, who was diagnosed with VEDS when she was 12 years old after a bowel perforation. In today's episode, we'll hear from Dominic Corso, who was diagnosed with VEDS after a sudden medical emergency that identified three aneurysms he didn't know he had. He shares details about that medical emergency, and he'll also talk about how he is dealing with a VEDS diagnosis in his 40s. Before we go over to the interview, if you like this show and want to support it, consider joining my Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you can make sure this show continues to reach people around the world with real-life stories about VEDS. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash translucentone, and you can also support the show by sharing this podcast with people you know to help us raise awareness of VEDS around the world. Thank you so much for your support. Let's go ahead and go to the interview with Dominic. Hey, Dominic, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to share your story with Vez. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody who's listening? Yep, I'm uh, Dominic Corso. I'm a 46-year-old. I am in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and I've had this Vez diagnosis for uh, just a little over two years. So it was February 6th, uh, 2020, when I had found out uh, kind of the answers to some of my questions, and the answers was Vez. So How did you, how did that... First off, that must have been very strange to get that at the beginning, like right before this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But how did that come about? Like, how did you what led to this? And it all it all started back in uh, in 2019. And and I should actually say it. uh, I had an emergency surgery in November of 2019 uh, where they had to surgically repair three aneurysms that they had found in my body. Uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, you know, I was just a normal guy living my life and, uh, I had an incident that day, but I had, I got to step back a little bit earlier before that, uh, because in March of 2019, I'd actually started to feel somewhat of a, a lump kind of in my groin area, uh, on the hip. And, uh, it was, it felt like half a tennis ball, the firmness of it, like half a tennis ball was about that size. Very strange. Um, you know, and naturally I, you know, I asked my wife, I'm like, what is, you know, what do you think? She's like, you should have a doctor look at that. So I did in March and then they had said, you know, based on what we know about you, you know, you're a healthy, you know, 40 ish kind of guy. It's probably a hernia as the pain presents itself, go ahead and get a, an ultrasound. We can look at it and see what's going on. Um, I again, visited the doctor in October with similar pain and I had not had that ultrasound yet. And uh, they kind of said the same thing. They're like, hey, when the pain presents, go ahead and get that ultrasound. Um, And I ran out of time. So in November of 2019, um, and I'll tell the story the way I like to tell it, because it was just a a great normal day. We're actually at a a soccer game 
it was a championship game for my my daughter, uh, and I was kind of helping out. And uh, they they smashed it. By the way, they just they crushed it and they okay. won. And we were we were celebrating that night. We went out to dinner, and we're just chilling with everybody. And um, later that night, when I got home, I started to talk to my wife, and I said, you know, I'm starting to feel this this gut pain, and it feels similar to the time I had kidney stones. I'll come back to that. And I said, I think something's going on. And that was about nine o'clock at night. By 10 o'clock, um, I was inconsolable. Um, it was very strange. The behavior that I was exhibiting was just completely not like me. I'd actually was kind of upstairs. I was in our bedroom and I had, I'd actually flipped over a couch and I was like pressing on the couch on that spot that was hurting. Um, I really had no idea what I was doing, but it it was the the largest of the three aneurysms. Um, I was probably putting myself in quite a bit of peril, pressing on it and trying to massage it and really alleviate some of that pain. But you know, by ten o'clock, you know, I was like, this is I can't take it anymore. Um, it literally floored me. And you know, we got in the car and we started to go to the hospital to the, the emergency room. And my behavior was just so erratic. We're about 10 miles from the hospital. It's only about a, it's a 20 minute, less than a 20 minute drive. And as we're driving down the freeway, I'm literally begging my wife. I'm like, you have to pull over. I need to get out of the car. I have to move. There was just this sensation of, I had to, I could not hold still. I'd never felt anything like this in my life. Uh, and so she, she insisted that we wait for an off ramp. And I, I literally had to get out of the car and do like, touching my toes and just like moving all around to alleviate some of that pressure. So I'm in this state of kind of pain and shock, not really understanding what's going on. Um, I'd actually been like climbing over the car already. It was incredibly strange. Next thing you know, we walk into the, the ER um, and they pretty quickly, uh, this is in 2019. So the, the volume at the hospital was pretty acceptable and I was able to get in rather quickly. Uh, they then basically put me in a room just for observation and evaluation. Uh, as you know, many people here with beds, you know, this type of dissections and aneurysms don't present in a guy like me. Usually it's a rare disorder. So they put me in a room and I was in there for about an hour. My, my erratic behavior continued. My wife tells me, she's like, you were crawling on the floor. You're like pushing on the walls. Um, these are all bad things to do when you have an aneurysm presenting itself <laughs> um, really bad. In retrospect, we look back at it and we're, we're like, that's, it's amazing that I was able to get to that point. Uh, and then after about an hour, they finally decided to go through the, the CT imaging process. And uh, I remember this distinctly because that lack of movement was, was really hurting me. And I told them, I said, I, I can't lay down. Please don't make me lay down. It, it just hurts to sit still. And they said, well, you're going you're to have to lay down for about two minutes. And they put me through the CT scanner and they pulled me out. And I, I was like, I have to stand up. They let me stand up. I did my, you know, touching my toes up and down. And then they said, hey, we need to do it again with the contrast. So as, as you know, that looks for more of the, the vascular system. Uh, and that is at that point where the world changed. Um, they pulled me out of the CT scanner and I, I went to sit up and they immediately said no you don't get to move anymore. And I'm like, I have to get up. They're like, you don't move now. And four people came in, they lifted me on the sheet, put me onto a gurney. And they're like, you need to just not move. 
I'm not really knowing what's going on. Obviously, they had found something on that CT, thank God. Um, and the next thing you know, I'm being wheeled into uh, more of a permanent room that has some of the facilities to take care of somebody who's in danger. Um, and it was at that point they told us that, hey, we've identified uh, these three aneurysms. And so I can tell you about those aneurysms. I have, I'm kind of, I have to say, I, I am kind of bragging about the size of my aneurysms. So forgive <laughs> me. <laughs> I take, I take great pride in this just because it was, uh, was so apparent to me. I did nothing about it. Um, but I had, I had three aneurysms and I had one, the, uh, AAA, the, um, abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, kind of in the center of my stomach. And then my two common iliacs on the right and left, both were presenting with uh, the aneurysms as well. So that tennis ball was one of your iliac arteries? Yep, it was the right common iliac artery. And that was the big one. So I had, I had one that was three and a half centimeters, one that was five and a half centimeters. And then on the, the one on the right was uh, eight, uh, just, just short of eight centimeters. And my understanding is that when you hit five, you're talking surgery. So mm -hmm. I was overdue for one guy and the other guy to be taken care of. Um, and so that's when they started to present to us the options, which were very limited. And they said, we, we need to get you out of here. You can't stay at this hospital. And they said, we're gonna send you downtown and be at a better place where they have the vascular surgeon available and a better team. And I, I remember them you know, at, at that point, um, saying like, no, we're, we're going lights and sirens. Um, and that this way they're starting to sedate me with some of the pain medication, um, which was very helpful, but I'm starting to, to gain some foggies here, fogginess here at this point. Um, and I also gained a lot of big sense of humor. I have a lot of jokes through this because the, the Dilaudid, um, apparently increases my sense of humor. So <laughs> I remember being the last thing I really remember before being transferred is sitting in the ambulance, like talking jokes with these guys and they're just like no <laughs> <laughs> next thing i don't remember any of the ride but the next thing i you know really remember is being in the hospital and uh, at the next hospital and the doctor really going through here's what the situation is and he went through all the risks of the procedure he's like i need your consent and um, the, the way that my wife tells the story is, you know, she said like, can he, is he even in a state where he can consent? And I was just like, I don't care. Just please make the pain go away. Just yeah. the pain. I need you to take care of the pain, do whatever you need to do. And that was about, so I had gone in to start the evening around 10 o'clock is when I hit the first ER. At this point, I'd been transferred right around midnight. And that's when we had to start making some calls. Um, it's very frightening at that moment to be like, wait a second, I was just had a soccer game this, you know, this afternoon. And now I'm being told that this might be it, that, you know, that we don't know how the surgery is going to go. And, uh, you know, everything's at risk. Yeah. And at that point they didn't know you had VEDS yet. That's correct. Either. This is all, you know, brand new information. Diagnosis. Yeah. Very confusing. And in retrospect, I think, uh, the stress of kind of hearing like where you're at, nothing made sense. And that's, I think, where one overwhelming emotion, I think a lot of VEDS patients have really started, which is what did I do to deserve this? What, what did I do wrong? And that, that's a really difficult emotion to, to make decisions with. And you start to, 
to self-blame. I had no idea that I was born with this. But I do remember at that point, um, I called my sister and I kind of told her, you know, how do you, how do you actually convey that to somebody? Um, but I just told her, I said, I, I don't know what's going on. This is the situation. And, you know, I realized that at the moment, like this might be the last time I talked to my sister and she just said, I got it. You know, I'll take care of it. So she went and helped tend to the kids. She helped inform my parents. And, you know, at this point, there's a lot of fuzziness in my recollection of this story. And to be honest, the reason why I've not really gone back and reviewed all of this, it's really difficult today. You know, in retrospect, there's uh, I don't know if you, if I can label it PTSD, but there's a lot of stress and a lot of emotion uh, that it conjures up when we, we, when I look back, I actually just found out this morning, I was talking to my wife about it. I was like, this is how it happened. Right. And she said, no, at midnight, we got the kids, we got your parents and we came and we were with you about one o'clock in the morning. And I have no recollection of this. Mm. And you know, I have three young kids I mean, they're oblivious to what's going on. My parents have no idea why this would be happening. Um, and I, I was just out of it. Um, and they, they prayed over me a little bit and, uh, the doctors had at this point actually stabilized me and said, he's, he's not in any danger right now. We do need to operate. And they said, we'll wait till the morning till about nine, 10 o'clock. And at about 11 o'clock, they, they started the procedure and it took about, from what I understand, it took about, about five hours for them to go in and do the, the repair on those three aneurysms. So they did the both iliacs and the abdominal aorta. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And what, what they had, what they did is they had to go into each one of the aneurysms, kind of clean it out. Um, and then they put a graft around it. And I don't think everybody's familiar with the graft, but the graft is basically like, I'll call it like surgical tubing in, inside my veins now. And so I like to think, and I've been, I've been confirmed this, that I'm now aneurysm proof on that graft. So that's a great sense of comfort to know that yeah. any pain in that area, again, I think I'm safe with regards to aneurysms. Unfortunately, there are other areas of me that are still at risk, but you know, it was, um, at that point, um, they, the doctor, so after about five hours of surgery, they waited a couple more hours. And so my family really hadn't gotten any contact. Um, at, but the doctor came out and then presented to them about, um, I believe it was about seven o'clock, uh, maybe six o'clock. They said, you know, he kind of stated like, Hey, he's gone through the surgery. It was this, it was a success. He's stabilizing. And my wife, I was talking to her again and she's, she said that that's when the doctor came out and he looked like he'd been through a lot when going into it, he was all, you know, good looking guy, ready to go. Afterwards, it was it was definitely it was definitely something that happened. Um, you know, there was a lot going on, and it does turn out that there was a little bit of a complication during that surgery. Um, and they they have some notes around it. They had to work through an existing dissection that they had found in the imaging. So um, that's where I go back to uh, the beginning of the story, where I said it felt like the the kidney stones that I had before. Uh, they weren't kidney stones. Um, I had assumed they were kidney stones five years previously when I was about thirty nine. And uh, we had a friend in the hospital with kidney stones. And I'm like, that's pain. Sounds like the kidney stones. It must be that. But five years previous, uh, I had had a dissection. And unbeknownst to me, I, you know, I didn't actually go to the hospital. Um, I tell the story. I had a, I had a job interview uh, the next day. And so I was like, I can't, I can't go anywhere. So I, I guess I, I toughed my way through it. 
but it turns out that that dissection had caused some problems during that next surgery where I had lost quite a bit of blood. So the, the notations on it is that I, I lost five liters of blood, which again, my wife reminds me is about the amount of blood that is in uh, my body of my size. And as a male, that's, I have about five liters of blood. The good news is the doctors remarked on it and said, Hey, the blood was pumping. He was very healthy. The heart was working. We were able to reclaim that blood and pump it right back into him. Um, so, you know, that's the first miracle, but, uh, I didn't know about any of that until much later. This is still stuff that I'm absorbing, trying to understand what, you know, five liters means to a person like myself. Right. So at what point, like that is a lot to go through. At what point did they start putting together that you had vets? Like, was that a result of that surgery? Yeah, absolutely. And that that's where, um, you know, I had, a, I had a, an interesting experience in the hospital just because it was somewhat of a mystery part, part of that process when they have to go in, um, they go, they go in. So I have a sternum to a pubic bone scar. It's about 13 inches, took about 38 staples. I like to brag about my staple count, um, but they had to go in and look around. But it, again, it's not something that would normally have been done for somebody like me. You know, I didn't have the characteristics of, you know, the, you know, severely obese, smoking history. These were not things that happened. So um, it was that next morning uh, when um, I woke up, I remember, I remember that first breath. I like to talk about it because it's, it's like a breath of life where you wake up and you're, and it was an awakening. I looked around and it was literally kind of like, where the hell am I kind of moment. And they had come in and they kind of told me that, you know, I'd survived obviously. And, you know, they said things were healthy and I was being stabilized, but, uh, it was only until really I started to have issues with some of the management of my blood pressure. Um, I was on every kind of blood pressure medication that you can offer me. Um, they're actually putting things on that are really cool sounding, but, uh, nitro patches. So they put a patch to absorb the medication through my skin. Um, those are not fun by the way, they give extremely bad headaches. And, but they were doing everything they could to kind of slow down my system and make sure that blood pressure was safe because I had had this aortic repair and plus the stitching and they, I needed to protect that. The way that surgery starts though, is that they basically take everything inside you and, and move it to the side and then they do your work. Um, well, that resulted with me, uh, it resulted in what's called an ileus where your stomach pretty much just shuts down. So you stop, your, your, your body just stops working. So I was in the hospital for about nine days. Um, and I think I had during that time, I think I had a, a tofu smoothie and I think some quinoa, which I don't recommend, <laughs> but, uh, they had, uh, essentially not been able to regulate the blood pressure. Um, what was really amazing. And I remarked, and I remember the emotion at the time, I'm like the brain power in this room, that's just trying to troubleshoot me is incredible. I had like six doctors, mostly you know, there's the hospitalists and surgeons all just kind of throwing ideas back and forth of what this could be. And based on the, that conversation kind of myself really not being where they, you know, thought I should be, uh, they said, you know, there might be some connective tissue disorder, which, you know, essentially is beds, but, uh, I, I had no idea what this meant. I had no idea what this meant for the future. And it was at this point though, that, you know, I was feeling very good. I was happy to be alive. Um, to be honest, when I, 
when I did wake up and people started to come visit, uh, you know, I felt a bit of guilt at the same time. I didn't know what I did to deserve it, uh, to make this happen. Um, and I certainly felt at that time, like I didn't deserve the attention that I got that life-saving attention. Um, and that's kind of a common theme that has been something that I've had to work on for the, the last, uh, you know, over two years is really kind of accepting the fact that, uh, that I do deserve that. I didn't do anything. This is something I was born with. And regardless, uh, you know, I did deserve that, that attention. Absolutely. So like, how did you, how did you work through those emotions and like, how do you work through those emotions? Cause those don't magically go away. Right. No, not at all. That's, and that's, that's really where, I, you know, I'll get to the community in a moment, but for me at that time, this was right around, this is still November. Um, we're still trying to figure out you know, how, how can we figure this out? So I, I did go see a geneticist um, and he said, you know, this sounds like we should test for this type of, you know, what can cause these type of aneurysms and uh, VEDS was on that spectrum, but I had a, a pretty broad genetic test that they ordered that was in December. And then in February 20, uh, I'm sorry, February 6th of 2020, they called me back in and I remember driving there. And I, I mean, what could go wrong? I, I, I could never imagine that there's never in my wildest imaginations that I thought of even something like this. And my wife said, you know, it's interesting that they've called you back in. And so I was preparing for something. Uh, and then the doctor gives me the, the diagnosis of you do, you have vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I'm like, well, what does this mean? And this is where there's starts to be a pretty much of a gap of there's some loneliness for about the next two months where I was on my own. Um, this is one of the things that, I mean, uh, I, I love the community for closing this gap with other people nowadays, but I, I for the next two months, pretty much thought I was going to be dying very soon. Uh, at the time when you looked up beds, you know, you, you go to search for it. Uh, it gave back really uh, two primary results that I saw which was, it was defined as the vascular Ehlers-Demos was the, the disorder where a sneeze can kill you. And they're talking about that pressure that you put on your vascular system. So that's pretty scary. Uh, and then they also said that the average life expectancy is about 48 years old at the time. And that's, I can't tell you how overwhelming that is. Um, I was at home at this point recovering, still recovering. And, uh, I look, you know, you learn a new way to cry at that point. There's something overwhelming about being 44 and thinking that you have four years to live. There's so much of your life that is completely just erased and you, know, you have to, I mean, there's, I didn't know how to redefine that. I was lost for quite some time. Um, but in that meantime, um, I had the support from my family. They were wonderful, you know, doing everything they could. Uh, but one of my daughters actually said, Hey, you should get on uh, Instagram. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Ehlers-Danlos stuff. So I started to get on, I, I started to look at Instagram, find some people, which somehow led me to the support calls that were happening at the time. It was in April of 2020 that I joined my first call. And I can't tell you the the great emotions that I had, I, where I was lost, I, you know, I finally found some answers. Um, and I, I like to, to mention that on that first call, friend of mine, who was also on the call for the first time, Dan, 
who you, you've spoken to before had mm-hmm. started talking. And as he's going through his, his story, I'm like, this is me. This is exactly what I'm dealing with. Like, how can this be so perfect? And I actually called him afterwards. I said, Hey, I think we're twins. And I love Dan. Um, but that immediately was this great relief of not being alone, uh, really trying to search for hope and have better contacts with the right people to help take care of myself. And, and from that, I, you know, it's, I, I make light of some of these things and I hope not to offend anybody who can't take this so lightly, but I kind of have to, for my own sense is how I cope with it. Um, but those calls started with me just showing up and sharing a little bit about what had happened to me. Um, and it's extremely cathartic, extremely helpful to do so, but it was also an opportunity for me to listen. Uh, and I can listen in a way that other people perhaps can't when you have this disorder, uh, there's just something about having it. And, uh, I think that was really great for me, not just to be able to share, but also to help in a little way, just by being ears to other people and hear their story. Uh, and I, I, I say this jokingly, but I was almost afraid to not show up to the next call. I was like, they're going to think I died <laughs> and think that I'm gone. Um, but I, I mean, I love it. I'm still addicted to these calls today. Um, it's, I have a wonderful community there and a wonderful support group in good times and bad. Um, and so that community really started there. And it was about a month later where I got introduced to some of the Facebook groups and it really expanded that network and really helped me to start to absorb what was going on with my diagnosis. Yeah, that's incredible. That first time that you really talk to somebody else with this is just such a kind of a, I don't want to say magical moment, but it is almost like this magical moment where it's not, it's no longer just you and the information that you found on the internet at that point, it becomes you and this person and this person. And and it's like, it builds this like wonderful sense of community and understanding that is hard to, hard to get anywhere else. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I actually have talked to other friends who have other issues, not not beds. Uh, and I, 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 I wish they had the same community that we have. Uh, I, I don't know where they turn to for support. Um, I know they don't have a type of uh, beds group like we have, but that community within the beds group is is so strong and it's so open. Um, I tell people routinely that you can take as much as you need from this group. It doesn't ask. Um, and it's, and I needed that. I absolutely needed that. Um, and it actually manifested itself about four months later where I, I was actually out. And this was kind of my, I'll call it my third incident mm-hmm. um, where I had a an kind of a spontaneous bleed, an internal bleed. Uh, and we were, we were out kind of, we were uh, out on a boat on a river, maybe bouncing around again. I was trying to blame myself, understand what I did wrong. And uh, I just started to feel some very, some, some really uneasiness around the flanks. And it turns out that I did have that, the peritoneal bleed. So inside that stomach sac, I was bleeding and we never discovered where it was coming from, but I had two large hematomas. I had blood pooling on my flanks, um, which is not fun. Uh, it's very painful. Uh, the doctors reminded me, they said, blood is not meant to be outside the veins in your body. It's like pouring, you know, uh, pouring bleach on your insides and it's not gonna feel good. Uh, but the real issue was that I was bleeding and that bleeding was depleting my hemoglobin and you know, essentially my life was in danger. 
Um, but I think, thank God, at this point, I'd been enough of the VEDS community that I had learned uh, this is not the time to react normally. And every doctor that I've dealt with, I really have no nothing bad to say about them. But the, the interventional radiologist at the time was not familiar with, with VEDS. And he came in and he explained them very pragmatically. He said, you have a bleed. We need to go in. We need to scope and find that bleed. And we need to plug that gap. What I had learned through the VEDS community is that procedure has actually led to the demise of many VEDS patients. That scoping, our veins just can't handle it and things start to crumble. Um, so an immediate shock went through me at that time. And, and I was like, no, you can't, you can't touch me. And the, inter inter the interventional radiologist didn't understand, you know, like, yeah. you know, why would you be so reluctant? But I had, in the meantime, I had actually made contact with uh, Dr. Shalhoub and I had her contact information and I was able to say, and um, Dr. Shalhoub is a, a real strong advocate for VEDS patients being assertive. And I think I did a pretty good job because I said, I'll do whatever you need to do, but I need you to consult with this vascular surgeon. And I'd like for you to do it on the speakerphone right here so that I can hear it and understand it as well. And he did. And uh, the approach for the VEDS patients is oftentimes conservative management. And so that's what we did. We said, as long as the blood loss is acceptable and the blood levels are acceptable, then we're going to go ahead and just let you wait and see what happens. And so we did that. And luckily I was able to recover. But in the meantime, um, I'm on the, the, one of the Facebook groups giving like play-by-play uh, -play updates. And I, I mean, I, I really thought it could be the end. Yeah. And then I started hearing people say like, oh, I've had that. And that's immediate relief. And people saying like, oh, don't forget, you can, you can get a blood transfusion. I'm like, oh, I didn't even, you know, I hadn't even thought of these things. But just the ability to to be assertive and say, I mean, I'm talking to a you know, very well-trained, very highly intelligent, educated person and their job is to just fix this and they know how to do it. And I'm telling them what to do. I can't imagine doing that without having first been exposed to the group and some of the assertiveness and awareness that they brought to me before that. Absolutely. There's such power and numbers and community there. And especially like within our group, it's just so well connected. It seems like you just, you post something on the group and then somebody like right away comes back. It just, we have such a wonderful network too of doctors that are on our side and very strong advocates for us. And it's so helpful. I like to actually think that, uh, you know, part of the, the group and that community really came to life in November of 2019. So I like to say that it was done for me. <laughs> I'm a lucky guy. It was perfect timing. And in the, in the last couple of years, it's grown immensely. And one of the things that I, I, I just revel in is that uh, I had to kind of wait through this two-month period of darkness trying to figure out on my own what was going on. And I mean, there's no better way to put it. I was in despair. I didn't understand why I would be gone in just four years. And um, being with that group, understanding that, hey, it's okay to be assertive. Um, you know, these numbers, things, these, these misstatements like, hey, a sneeze can kill you or life expectancy is 48. I started to understand that there's actually a bigger picture there. There's actually more optimism. There's more hope. Um, and that's something I didn't have before. There's really no hope. Um, and that's something that I, I kind of attribute to, uh, to Lauren, who works with Dr. Byers. Um, she was able to, to consult with us over the phone 
initially um, in March of 2020. Uh, and the reason because of that is that, um, as you know, there was this global pandemic starting. Mm-hmm. Um, appointments, sessions with vascular surgeons, with geneticists, everything got stopped. And so I was again in this kind of point where I did not know how to move forward. Uh, but Lauren got on the phone with us and she talked about the community. She talked about the others that you know had survived beds or beds incidents and people that were living with it. Um, and that was the first time that I actually had this sense of hope that it was going to be okay. Uh, they also explained to me that surviving that first event really makes that 48, that 48 years of life expectancy kind of go out the window. I survived that first event, uh, whereas many people do not. Many people don't know that they have this disorder uh, and it gets the best of them because they're just not prepared on how to manage it or how to handle those emergencies. I joke now that I say it's not fair because now I'm hearing of people who are being diagnosed and finding the community literally the next day. Uh, and I, I just, I don't know what better, I, we can't get any better than that. It's wonderful. It's the best thing in the world. And um, mm-hmm. just knowing how to be assertive, uh, it's, I think it is the best thing in the world. And I've had success and failures uh, being assertive. Um, I, when I did have that internal bleed, I walked in, I gave my script. Uh, it's something I'd heard from other people. I was in and had a CT in 30 minutes, um, bragged mm-hmm. about it. I talked to you about it. There's a little nice article published <laughs> somewhere about that, <laughs> that, uh, that brags about that. Uh, but very, so proud of myself just be, to be able to, to get into the right place and assert myself in a world where I usually would have acquiesced and just done whatever the doctors had wanted. Uh, but that's, that's really from the community. I don't know how to, I don't know how to give anybody else better credit for that. Yeah. Now, did you, did you get to find out what kind of mutation you have? I did. I did. And this is actually very interesting for me because of that, that pandemic and some of the doctor's availability. Um, it's really kind of two parts because it started out uh, with me understanding that I have a splice site mutation. So not the worst kind, not the best kind. Um, and it wasn't until about a year later when I really was able to, to get in touch with Dr. Byers and visit where he said, you know, based on your mutation, uh, and and I am de novo, so I am the first in my family to have this. I like to say I'm the X-Man, I'm the, I'm the mutant. And uh, he said, we, we don't actually have anyone else who has this specific mutation. There's some others that will be able to go into the databases and find somebody else's mutation and understand more about how it presents. For me, I was just, hey, this is, you are very unique. Um, my mom always said I was one in a million, so... Uh, and he said, but we don't actually know what your body is doing. Your body might actually be understanding this mutation enough to say, Hey, don't create this, this collagen. If you create the collagen in this manner, it's going to be faulty. It's going to be what they call that mutant collagen. Mm -hmm. And so what he suggested to me is that I do get the, the fibroblast test. That's where they take some of your skin, they put it in a Petri dish and they see how your, your collagen actually grows. And um, one of the, the greatest gifts that I got in my life is they came back and said, you do have what's called that, that null variant or the haplo insufficiency. And so in, in my understanding of it, I'll just explain it real quick. It's that uh, whereas um, those that do not have the null variant, they will have their collagen mixed with that defective collagen. And it's, it's more likely to tear and break. Whereas I have with the null variant about half as much collagen as the, the normal average non-VEDS person. So 
what I was told was, you know, you do have later life onset, which makes sense. I didn't really have an incident. So I was about 39 or 44 in that range. And um, you know, you're spared from a lot of the GI issues, which was very comforting to me because I have a lot of pain still from the surgery. It's probably more nerve damage or just, you know, a lot of work was done in there and a lot of pushing body parts around. Mm -hmm. um, but I was alleviated from that fear of some of the, the GI issues or perhaps like the bowel perforations. Um, and they said, you have a longer life expectancy. Um, we're not exactly sure what that is, as I've been, under, as I've been told, because the, um, no, those diagnosed with null are continuing to, to live past the mean age. And so they can't actually define that mean age, which is which really hopeful. Um, and hearing people on the board, uh, on the message boards in the community say, you know, they have these type of mutations, I'm sorry, this, this type of mutations, and they're able to say like, no, I'm, you know, I survived. Here's how old I am. And I'd always seek out people that are older than me and say like, okay, I can get there. I can get there and get there. And mm -hmm. the number continues to go up and up and up. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so the first piece of information that you got was actually not, not accurate then. So when you got in to see Dr. Byers, you were able to get a more accurate assessment. Exactly. Of what, what your picture looked like. Yeah. It's something that I've, I, I don't know how to actually promote that more with other people, but I believe, um, and I think that Dr. Byers agrees that there is somewhat of a, uh, an underdiagnosis of those with null. And um, I guess my only advice there is to talk to a geneticist who is familiar with beds and make sure that they can evaluate if your type of initial mutation, if that can be evaluated through the skin test. Uh, it's, it's how I found my, my null variant, just, ve just very important for how I live my life and the limits that I can put on myself. Yeah. Now, did your kids get tested for VEDS? Yeah, I, I have three kids um, with the uh, autosomal dominant um, type of uh, disorder that we have. That means you have about a 50-50 chance of spreading this to your children. Um, and I'm not the luckiest guy in the world. So uh, we're not completely spared. Um, however, I, I try and steer away from this topic for the most part. My kids are young. And the way that they choose to adopt and move forward um, or hide or share, I really need to leave up to them. So I tend not to go too deep into that avenue. But uh, yeah, that, that was a different day too when getting those results back was a, a game changer. Um, whereas before I was gonna, and my, my heart set on being the, the guy that was gonna somehow run a marathon and you'd be making bracelets with my name on it. It turned into more, hey, I've got, I have other people to take care of, uh, change the world. So, but uh, at the same time, so I, I like to, I like to keep that a bit at arm's distance and in these open conversations, uh, but it is, that's a game changer. Yeah. How did you, how did, and I totally respect keeping that private, you know, mm -hmm. um, how did you deal with that emotion? Like you said, it was a game changer, like how. How is your day-to-day -day now as a parent with VEDS who also has VEDS in the family? Well, it's, I, I, I always, I, I've, uh, I've learned to start to be selfish. Uh, it's okay. We have to self-advocate. We have to take care of ourselves first. And uh, use the analogy before, it's like when you're on the airplane and the oxygen mask comes down, they're like, you got to put your mask on first so you can take care of other people next. Um, and so I, I put a lens over what I do that says, you know, is this safe? Is this within? Uh, the realm of what I should be doing or can be doing. And 
with kids, it's a little bit different because you take that same extreme and you apply it towards them and they're living their life. You know, they're, they're not, they can't be as restrained as, as I can. Uh, and I want them thinking about it all the time, but uh, I do think about it all the time. It's, it's top of mind always in that lens of what should we do or what should we not be doing that I have myself, uh, you know, is amplified through kids. So that's, it's in the, it's a game changer. It's a different, completely different ball game. But uh, at the same time, uh, we know, just like I was able to survive my first event. Um, again, I believe it's a miracle. Um, we know now we're able to be proactive. So um, I get annual scans myself. We're able to be proactive and try and identify an aneurysm. And I do have an existing aneurysm still. Uh, it's not growing. Um, they're looking at things like my aortic root for dilation, which is a problem. And that's the holding well. Uh, but you know, knowing that we have it allows us to be in so much greater control uh, in a world with a disorder where there's really little that we can do. I was told to, you know, not lift more than 20 pounds. Um, I was told to avoid things like sprinting. Um, you know, a lot of restrictions, a lot of, you know, maybe overprotection. And, uh, you know, learning then that I had the null variant kind of make it, allowed me to back off a bit. Uh, but it also, you know, allowed me as I apply that lens towards the family, able to back off a little bit and not be scared. And that's in my head. A lot of this uh, about beds, people talk about, it feels like you have a target on your back. You never know. Uh, the nature of the disorder is so sudden. You don't know when it's going to manifest itself. And so knowing all of this really helped alleviate a lot of that pressure. Uh, and this is two years past my diagnosis. So it's taken a long time. Um, and I think I, I mentioned to you before, I, before I, I didn't want to have this interaction, this call with you until I could do two things. One, be in person, which the pandemic perhaps is not going to allow that, but another day. But the second part is, you know, I wanted to tell people, and this was a year ago, I wanted to tell people, I feel broken. I still feel like I'm, I have not figured this out. Um, every day is, uh, you know, it's not every day, but you know, there's new challenges presented constantly new, who knows what's going to happen is going to be presented constantly. Um, and I wanted to tell you, I didn't want to tell everybody, I feel, I still feel broken, but it's been a year later since that. And I, you know, it's two years past that diagnosis. I feel a lot less broken. I feel like there's a lot more manageable and a lot more hope, um, in a much better place. But uh, it definitely wouldn't be that case if I don't think I'd met the community. Again, the community is where uh, I was encouraged to really kind of identify with the group that knew where I was coming from, could help me through those worries. But they also really promoted uh, mental health awareness, which is something that I was oblivious to before. Um, I don't think I ever really appreciated it. Um, but uh, one of the psychologists on the call said, call me anytime. And so I called her and was like, all right, how is sitting on a couch telling you about my parents going to really help with this? And she's like, <laughs> you got it all wrong. You know, it's not really about that. It's about trying to really understand your emotions and really understand what you can and cannot do and what's right to be in your head and how you can evaluate things in a really, a, I, I think it's not just more intelligent way, but really a kinder way to yourself. Um, we can be really hard on ourselves when things go wrong. Um, you hear it a lot, you know, like you had to bleed. What, what did you do to make that happen? Or, right. you know, you know, you should stop smoking. 
I'm not a smoker. <laughs> you know? Right. So, but to to really have that help with mental mental health uh, has been just so dramatic for me in my life. That's wonderful. Is that what you would recommend to somebody else listening that just got this diagnosis? I, you know, I, I, I'd like to say yes. I just, I know that that VEDS is so unique to each person. Um, I think you need to take a little bit from, from each person and, and really find what works for you. Uh, but there are no rules here. These are, you get your own set of rules. That's part of the game. Um, this is such a, a rare and unique thing that you should learn from what others, what works. Um, however, I will say you need to find your strategy. Um, my strategy is, is heavily based in the community and my faith. And I've found, uh, I found, a I somewhat redefined my God. Um, there's a religion, which is my community that supports me. And then I, I have my God that I understand and I can speak to, and it's really kind of speaking to myself and understanding, um, what I need. But for me, I, I needed, uh, the mental health, mental health awareness and that help through the therapist to really get to that point. I really didn't understand. Uh, and it goes back to what I was saying before about what did I do to deserve this? How, you know, I can't, I still revel at the amount of energy that it took to save me. And I don't think that I'd been living life the way that I wanted to. Uh, Vets changed my life. I was able to refocus and start to understand that you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Uh, that day will come. But in the meantime, um, I like to use the analogy of, you know, they talk about your cup runneth over and that can be with mm -hmm. good or bad. When I got the VEDS diagnosis, something that I've just a mindset that I've developed is that I still have that cup. It's just gotten a little bit smaller. Uh, life's not going to have as many experiences or as long as many years perhaps. And so I'm going to make sure that whatever goes in that cup is what I want. And I don't have time for a lot of the, for the BS. I don't have a lot of time for the people that don't understand. And so uh, that mental health awareness, I think, has really empowered me to, to keep things at an arm distance that don't support me and really seek out and welcome those that do. Well, that's really wonderful, Dominic. And I really appreciate you sharing and sharing your story. For sure. If there's anybody out there listening to this who is struggling with their mental health or you're just diagnosed with this, there is a very supportive community out here. If that speaks to you to reach out, absolutely don't hesitate to do so. Um, this is, like Dominic said, a super supportive community and, and we're here if you need us, you know? It's great. So thank you so much, Dominic, for joining. Yeah, I appreciate everybody who was able to listen to this. And I hope that you got something out of it. That's one of the things that, uh, that I fear is not being able to do enough. And so I'd like to take every opportunity to, to try and help people or talk to people or listen to people as much as I can. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it, it really shows and I appreciate it so much. And thank you. Thanks everyone for listening in today and thank you Dominic for sharing your story with VEDS on the show. In the next episode on May 28th, we will hear from Charlene Terrell Newman who lost her son Luke to VEDS last year. Don't forget to subscribe to staying connected on your podcast player so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media to help us raise awareness of VEDS together. 
You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash translucent1. Thanks so much, and I will see you soon.